This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Group. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for other great podcasts. You're listening to Coffin Cast. Please be aware that this is a dark subject matter and may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Before we begin, I want to begin this episode on a serious note. Yesterday when I was wrapping up my research, I got word across Twitter that Kobe Bryant had died in a helicopter crash. It was pretty early in things, so there weren't a lot of details, Just and it wasn't even sure that he actually died or anything. It was just kind of speculative at that point. And it shocked me, of course. It shocked everybody. Even people that weren't sports fans were like, oh my god, because Kobe Bryant... I think it's safe to say he was famous outside of basketball. He was he was a phenom. He surpassed, you know, just being a sports star. He was a star. And I it brought to mind, you know, something I watched a couple weeks ago. I don't know if it was a couple weeks ago or last week. Uh, a video with Kobe and Gianna at a Brooklyn basketball game. And just how happy they looked and how much she loved him and how much he loved her and you could see a very special connection between the two of them they weren't just father and daughter they were they were buddies and that was before any of this happened and then you find out that Gianna went with him um as a mom that's kind of a sucker punch um my son's 13 almost 13 and I cannot imagine what Vanessa's going through right now with um with this. She lost her husband, who she was with since she was 17. She lost her daughter. And I don't mean to paint Kobe Bryant as this perfect saint because we all know his history. Um but I like to think that having four daughters changed him for the better. And when you know better, you do better. And I, I I, like to think he turned his life around and fixed himself. But I'm just, I'm, I would be remiss to not address it. And I hope, you know, if they had to know that there was problems with the helicopter, if they had to know that they were going to not survive, that they were together and I hope they found some sort of comfort in that and that he was able to be, you know, present with her and she was able to be with him. And, you know, I, I hope they found comfort in that together before they met their end. And I cannot, like I said, I can't imagine what, uh, Vanessa Bryant's going through. And, I'm not much of a prayer. I'm sorry. I'm just not. But I hope beyond hope that someday the family finds peace. The little girls find peace. Vanessa finds peace. And I hope the families of the other people involved also find peace. Um, and the pilot's family. And it's 
And I hope people in general, the people that really looked at him as a hero, find peace as well. So with that, uh, I'm going to go ahead and close. Uh, let's go ahead and get on with the show. Welcome to Coffin Cast episode 30. My name is Kristen. Hi, everybody. We're on the season one finale. When a season break happens, typically it'll be about three months and then they'll come back and everything. I'm only taking a month at the most. I just need to get some things done. Um, I need to get my health in order because I've been dealing with something the past couple weeks. I'm, I don't know what's going on, but I have not been feeling well. So I need to get that in order. I need to get my sleep in order. And I'm going to be doing some writing, some preemptive writing for future episodes of Coffin Cast. Also, I am going to be working a little bit on another podcast, a kind of audio drama story project thing, getting that started. So have that to look forward to. But I am taking a month off recording because if I have to hear my voice one more time, I'm going to... No, I'm just kidding. I, I have no problem with my voice. My voice is fine. It's great. Uh, but I, I just... I, I need to figure out some things. I'm going to keep doing Coffin Cast. Don't worry. I'm coming back. But I just need to get some time management skills down because episodes are happening late and I, I don't want that. You don't want that. But I think I'm just dealing with some health and exhaustion issues so I need to get that under control and then we'll be ready to do Coffin Cast again like we were in the beginning. So, just a reminder that this is the last episode of the Wildlife Warriors benefit thing I'm doing. So remember that every listen, every little bit of support is going directly to the Wildlife Warriors Fund uh, for building a wing of their the, of the Australian Zoo that's going to be going to taking care of flying foxes, orphan flying foxes, or fruit bats however you want to call them. They're cute as can be. And also taking care of some koalas that were misplaced because of the wildfire. So we need to do this. You can listen on mute if if that's your thing. If you are really not wanting to help, I mean, listen on mute. Or go donate directly. That's fine too. Also, you can join the Patreon for a month and then quit. If you don't want to keep supporting, that's fine. Everything up until February, I'm going to say second. We'll say second just to make sure that all the funds come in for Patreon and everything like that. And make sure that Anchor is up to date with all the advertising money. And then that next day, I will send it off to the Wildlife Warriors. I'll take a screenshot so that everybody knows that on behalf of the fans of Coffin Cast, we support Wildlife Warriors. So that'll be done again, probably February 2nd. So, with this episode, like I said, we are closing out the first season of Coffin Cast. So this is going to be kind of a special episode. It's going to cover two things, in a way, that are connected together. Isn't that fun? It's going to be a longer episode, I think. We'll see. I usually don't know until I'm done recording how long an episode's going to be, but there is a lot of info, a lot of fun info in this episode, so I hope you enjoy it. 
So we're going far, far back in time, at least 120 years. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Imagine it. We're going back a little bit further. Keep going. A little bit more. Not that far. Back it up a little bit. There you go. You caught consumption, or as we know it today, tuberculosis. And you have passed away. Let's take a look at what happens next as you journey into Death Rituals of the Past, the Victorian edition. modern day weddings, wearing white, etc., mourning practices seem to be all traced back to one person. That would be Queen Victoria. Hell, the period was named after her, Victorian period, you know? Victoria loved her husband Albert deeply, and when he died, she was almost fanatical about preserving his memory and honoring him. She wore black until the day she died in 1901, and a lot of what I'm going to go over has Queen Victoria to thank. So thanks, Queen Vicky. So, you did. You're dead. Now what? The first thing that would be done is that a family member would stop the clocks in the room where you died. Back then, most people died at home rather than in a hospital. So it was a means of not only recording the time of death, but also it was considered bad luck not to. Only after a body had been placed in the ground would you be allowed to get that clock restarted. Now, in addition to being attributed to Queen Victoria, a lot of these rituals and things kind of are steeped in superstition. So, next, in the room you were in, mirrors would be covered so that your newly freed soul wouldn't get caught or wouldn't get confused and then be stuck in the house forever. Family photos were often treated the same. They'd be covered or turned over completely. A black wreath would be placed on the front door or sometimes in lieu of a wreath, black crepe would be placed over a doorknob or the doorknob. Over the doorknob. Crepe was a light silk and it was typically used to show mourning, so it was also used in clothing and things like that, mourning clothes, funeral clothes. This was a signal to visitors to enter very quietly, not cause a ruckus. Sometimes the door would be slightly left ajar, the front door would be left ajar so that nobody, you know, it wouldn't, you wouldn't have to knock on the door or ring the bell or anything like that. You could just walk in very quietly. If there was white crepe used or a white wreath, typically that meant either a child, a young person, or an unmarried woman had died there. Now let's say you had a wife. Your wife would be expected to wear black for the next two years and also isolate herself from society, so no going to parties. She would be pretty confined to her home, light get-togethers with other ladies. If you had a husband, However, he would be expected to marry the next week. Just kidding. Kind of. 
either way, the men had no set time frame in mourning, as far as anything I could find. Women would also, regardless of who died in their family, have to wear a very ornate, heavy crepe dress, black crepe. Now, as a Texan, as a person who has survived barely Texas summers, I think about having to wear heavy black clothing, a corset, knickers, bloomers, whatever, in 100 plus degree heat. It is a nightmare to try to imagine that. So I can't imagine how ladies had to do it back then. Also, because life expectancies were so low, people would end up wearing these clothes for a majority of their lives. Children, on the same token, were expected to mourn a parent for a full year, and your pet dog, your pet cat, even if you had a pet chicken, they would be expected to wear a black ribbon so that death would not visit your family too soon. Basically, the idea of wearing black was to head off death coming back. It's like, hey, death, see me in black? That means... I'm dealing with death. I don't need you right now. Let's let's give it a rest, basically. So aside from that, a few locks of your hair may be cut to create what is called a memento mori, which literally means, remember, you must die. This hair would be placed in lockets or pieces of jewelry to be worn in remembrance of a loved one, as well as a reminder of one's own mortality. Or let's say, you know, this is kind of sad and it's not a topic I like to talk about, but let's say if a child or an infant passed, which if we're honest in Victorian England, even in the Victorian US, it was common that children would not survive. Families would create what was called a mourning doll. It would be an effigy to represent the deceased child. So they may incorporate the child's hair, their clothing they would make the doll out of wax and it would be laid in a coffin and taken to the burial site and laid upon the grave after the child was buried other times they would take it home after the service and lay it in the crib and treat it as if it was a real baby meaning dress it clean it kind of weird but you know whatever gets you through this When you would lay the doll back, its eyes would close to look like it was in a peaceful slumber. So now let's talk about another way that families would honor the dead. Post-mortem photos. I'm going to put this out there. There is a lot of debate as to whether or not early posted examples of post-mortem photography are actually post-mortem. Early photographs were very uncomfortable to take because you'd have to sit there for hours not moving. So there's these tools, or what would you call it? I guess kind of like these boards that you would get strapped to to make sure you didn't move and mess up the picture because photos were expensive. So sometimes people would say, oh, well, you can see that he's strapped in there. That means that he's dead. But in truth, that just means that he is paying for a very expensive photograph and doesn't want to screw it up. So that was used on living people. Not to say that post-mortem photography did not happen. It did absolutely happen. 
but not all the examples you see online are in fact postmortem photos. But postmortem photography did happen, mainly because photos were expensive at the time, and sometimes postmortem photos would be the only photo of a subject someone would have. In other words, better to have a photo of a dead loved one than none at all. Most of the time they were posed in a natural way, surrounded by family, looking peaceful, and they'd look to be slumbering, sleeping, or they would actually have eyes painted on their eyelids to give a lifelike appearance, so it did happen. Also, in some instances, death masks were made, specifically in earlier Victorian times prior to photography being readily available. We touched on this a little bit in the Madame Tussauds episode because that's primarily how she got her start. Mostly these were masks made of plaster or wax. And just an aside, I'm going to give you a little fun tidbit here. One of the most famous death masks of all time is still in use today. Death masks were used in forensics if an unidentified body was discovered. They would make a cast of the face so that perhaps later the person could be identified without waiting to bury the body because they didn't use embalming back then. They would put them on ice, but that could only hold for so long because they didn't have freezers and things like that. They would make these masks, display them, and somebody could go, okay, there's my son or there's my wife, whatever. Now, back to the little story I was going to give you. In the late 1880s in Paris, a young woman's body was pulled from the Seine. She was gauged to be about 16 or so, but no one knew who she was. A morgue worker, so entranced by her beauty, made a cast of her face saying, quote, Her beauty was breathtaking and showed few signs of distress at the time of passing. So bewitching that I knew beauty such as this must be preserved, end quote. Copies of the cast were made and it became the thing to have one in your possession. It was called Le Canu de la Seine probably saying that wrong i took four years of french i should be able to say it which basically translates to the unknown woman of the sin it is widely believed that due to the lack of violence in her body and the serene nature of her face that she had committed suicide by throwing herself in the sin in 1958 peter safar and his partner asman laderall were developing cpr and a training program when the face came to mind to this day, CPR dolls, Recessa Annie's, have the face of the unknown woman, and she is now known as the most kissed face of all time. So think about that next time you are taking a CPR class and you have a CPR dummy that's a lady. That is the face of a woman who committed suicide in 1880. Back to funeral rituals. Funerals, like weddings, were meant to be large, elaborate affairs to show wealth and class. Many families began saving for funerals before there was even a cause to. After all, they were expected to rent a large glass carriage with two or more black horses, pay for funeral clothing, pay for a funeral director, pay for photos, pay for invites, pay for fancy floral arrangements, even pay for professional mourners, you know, for appearances to make you look more popular than you were. It only made sense that they would start saving as soon as they could. After all, no one is immune to death. So the funeral would typically take place at home in a parlor or a bedroom. The body would be removed from the home feet first always so that the deceased couldn't look back and see where he or she was to return to haunt the place. 
You'd be buried or locked in a mausoleum if your family was rich enough to prevent grave robbers. And then everyone would return to your former residence to feast it up, which again, costs more money. So let's say your family couldn't afford a classy funeral or a funeral at all. If you were unfortunate enough to be in the UK at the time, they had the Anatomy Act of 1832. Basically, you had seven days to properly bury a body or it would be donated to practicing physicians or surgeons. Or if your family couldn't afford it, they could just donate your body for the price of a burial. Or if your body was not claimed, you also would be donated to physicians and surgeons, etc. But if your family loved you and didn't want to donate you, but couldn't afford to have a funeral for you, they would be able to turn to the poor union, which would put you in an unmarked grave with absolutely no ceremony. But lucky you, you were rich and your family could save up for your funeral. But what if your doctor got it wrong? What if you still had a heartbeat, but the doctor couldn't hear it? Embalming wasn't a thing yet, so you'd just be buried with all your guts. Isn't it possible you could be buried alive? Not to fear. Coffin makers addressed these fears with several different designs for the concerned cadaver. One had a string that was tied around the deceased finger, which would lead to a bell outside, and it would be covered so the wind couldn't set it off or anything like that. So if there was an issue, all one needed to do was wiggle a finger, and freedom would be on the way. There was a man in the U.S., a doctor nonetheless, named Timothy Clark Smith, who was so afraid of being buried alive that he designed his own casket with a window that went down six feet to his grave to make sure he was, in fact, dead. He is buried at Evergreen Cemetery in Vermont, if you are eager to go take a look. It seems that, the like, from the photos online that it's a little murky, so you can't really get a good look at his body, or it's probably a skeleton by now, but you can't really get a good look. But if you want to go just for shits and giggles, you know, that's that's where you go, Evergreen Cemetery in Vermont. And just in case you were wondering, when he was buried, he was, in fact, dead. Now, let's say you didn't die from consumption or old age. What happens if you went out violently? How would they identify your killer? How would they investigate without the technology that we take for granted today? I'm going to take a quick break to let my friend Allison at True Crime Snack Time tell you a little bit about herself and her podcast. And as usual, I'll tell you a little bit about Anchor and then we will jump right into CSI, Victorian Times. Are you a true crime addict? Do you find yourself talking serial killers and missing persons at parties only to be met with uncomfortable smiles? Well, find your tribe on True Crime Snack Time, a daily podcast that gives you a little true crime snack to chew on. From January 1st to December 31st, you'll find out what happened on this day in true crime. Short, sweet, and chock full of crime. Join me, Allison, on True Crime Snack Time. We're available wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Follow True Crime Snack Time on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Crime Snack Pod. And remember, keep your friends close and your snacks closer. tirelessly stayed by your bedside, making sure you had enough food and fluids, trying in vain to nurse you back to health. Only the food and fluids were laced with arsenic. 
you had no chance. I guess you could say you were a pain in her arsenal. in addition to said wife you had a family who were suspicious and brought their suspicions to the police after you died how would they know how would they investigate this without some of the technology that we have available to us today they had a couple avenues that may provide the clues they need before your beloved missus ran off with her new victim and your inheritance First, they may have an autopsy performed. Prior to 1836, autopsies were not really used very often. Reason being, people were afraid of cutting open dead bodies because A, they thought decomposition meant disease and bacteria that could get into them and therefore kill them, and B, because cutting open a dead body is bad luck. Duh. Medical examiners would use body temp, rigor mortis, to establish a time of death. Also in 1836, the Marsh test was developed, which could detect arsenic in human tissue. The first time it was really put to the test was in 1840s France, when a foundry owner, Charles Lafarge, died under mysterious circumstances. It was widely believed that his wife, Marie, poisoned him with arsenic. This was the very first time the test and toxicology at large was put on trial, so to speak. Charles's body was exhumed and tested and arsenic was found to be present. She was sentenced to life in prison. This test also became a deterrent and arsenic poisonings went way down after this trial. You are able to rest in peace knowing that your murderer is getting it in the arsenic. That one wasn't as good. <laughs> All right, but we'll go with it. So what about other means of violent death? Let's say you're at a bar enjoying some whiskey and all of a sudden a bar fight breaks out and in the chaos, somebody produces a gun and shoots and it hits you in the head and you die on impact on the bar floor. The gun is dropped, the bar empties, no one knows who made the shot. How would they even begin? There's no cameras, there's no nothing. Well, first, police would show up, of course, and they would take photos. Crime scene photos weren't that much of a thing until the late 1800s, specifically until the Jack the Ripper case in the 1880s. French photographer Alphonse Bertillon, who was a pioneer in criminal photography, also spearheaded the forensic photography movement. He would take photos at ground level and also above, which was referred to as a God's eye view photo of the body. He would also take photos of the scene, of objects, fingerprints. He would take close-ups of the wounds, the scars on the victim, any identifying characteristics. Relating back to the Jack the Ripper case, Victorian investigators believed that Jack the Ripper's victims had somehow gotten an imprint of their killer in their retinas. So they would take close-up photos of the eyes. Kind of freaky, if you ask me. <laughs> In your case, since you were shot in the head from an unknown assailant, blood splatter would be checked. Yes, they did check blood splatter back then. Around 1873, three methods for blood testing were developed. Optical, meaning the blood splatter that was visible by the naked eye at the scene, microscopic, and chemical. 
So they would look at which way your blood splattered across the bar and see which direction the shot must have come from, or how far away the gun was when you were shot. Also, they could test your blood to see how much you had to drink before you were shot. If the gun hadn't been left at the scene, they could do bullet analysis to see which type of gun the bullet was fired from. Also semi-surprising is that in the very late 1800s, fingerprint evidence was in its infancy. It wasn't until then that fingerprints were determined to be completely unique to an individual, so that made things a lot easier. It wasn't until 1902 that fingerprint evidence was even used in a trial, and it was only to prove that a man stole billiard balls. Go figure. And lastly, there was a piece of hair left on the gun that didn't match yours. The investigator would pick it up and try to match it with the people that were at the scene. It was a shorter hair with a root attached, so they were able to rule out a woman, which back then women typically wouldn't be considered for violent crimes like this. Sorry, not to be misogynist or anything. And women typically didn't have short hair back then either. So with fingerprints, hair, blood splatter evidence, scene evidence, they were able to determine whoever shot you in the head was near enough to you to have done it intentionally, and unless the witnesses were tight-lipped, they would be able to find the culprit. Rest in peace, my friend. And that's the end of season one of Coffin Cast. Just a reminder, I am running the Wildlife Warriors charity drive until February 2nd. Every listen, every Patreon dollar goes directly to Wildlife Warriors. I'll wait until probably the second or third to uh, do the actual donation. And I will screenshot it so that way you can be assured that your money is going to where it's supposed to. As of Monday, we are at $35 and I am personally rounding it up to 40 I would love for us to make at least 50 if we can, but I'll be happy with 40. I'd be happy with even more, but I mean, just listen, mute it and listen. I don't even care. Let's, let's save some fruit bats and koalas. They need us. Also, a very special thank you to my newest patron, David Owens. Thank you so much for joining the Coffan tier. I really appreciate you being a part of it. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. You're awesome. There are tiers as low as $1. And like I said, if you want to just join for this month and um, have that money go directly to the Wildlife Warriors Fund, you can do that. You can just do one month and then delete it. Just make sure you do it before January 31st because it will not be charged until the first of the month because that's how Patreon works. So just be aware. Even though there will be no new episodes for a month, I will still be on Twitter at CoffinCast with a capital C. I'll still be on Instagram at CoffinCastPod. I will also be on Facebook. You can find me anywhere. You can email me at CoffinCast at gmail.com. I'm going to be around. I'm not going anywhere. I'm still going to be working on episodes. I'm still going to be around. I'm just going to take a deadline off for a little while. I want to give a very special thank you to my patrons. Aaron, Kara, and David, thank you so much for making this a very special season. I look forward to hearing your input for season two because you guys always have amazing ideas. I look forward to hearing more. And the Patreon episode is coming this week. I'm working on it Friday. I will have the day Friday except for a doctor's appointment. I will be working on it, getting it done, getting it recorded, and getting it up on Patreon. 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 I can say it. So with that, 
everyone, I want you to know life is but a dream walking, but death is going home. I love you so much. I look forward to seeing you in a month. Don't forget where to find me. Bye, guys.